Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 253 of the podcast. It is June 14th, 2016. My guest today is Ash Moria. He's the author of the book, Running Lean, Iterate from Plan A to a Plan That Works. And his latest book, which is being released this week, is called Scaling Lean, Mastering the Key Metrics for Startup Growth. Ash is an entrepreneur. He's a big part of the lean startup community. You can learn more and visit his website at www.leanstack.com. So today we're going to talk about how Ash got introduced to lean, the related uh, concepts of theory of constraints. We'll talk about the idea of a customer factory. How do you make customers Why is it important to prioritize waste, even though, um, as Ash says, and I agree, waste is everywhere. And we'll talk about the Lean Canvas and the one-page experiment report uh, from his latest book. Again, that title is Scaling Lean. It's uh, available this week. You can find it at Amazon and other bookstores. Ash is also doing a free webinar through the Lean Startup Company on June 16th, coming up real soon. You can find... Links to all of this and more by going to leanblog.org slash 253. Ash, hi. Thanks for being a guest on the podcast today. Thanks, Mark. Pleasure being on. So I was wondering if you could start off by introducing yourself and a little bit of your career story uh, for listeners who, who might not already know that. Sure. So my one-line bio is I'm an entrepreneur. I've been for over a decade and I can think will continue to be for the next few decades, I, I hope. Um, <laughs> Now, I guess what got me into all of this is along the way, I began to realize that while all my ideas started out as awesome ideas, not all of them went on to become awesome products or business models. And so where I began to start questioning things was not so much the success and failure rate, because that's part for the course, but really trying to build some kind of a framework or repeatable, I call it a meta process for just knowing whether the ideas are any good as quickly as possible rather than spending two years of your life and then realizing that was a big mistake. So that's that's what really got me started. And so in more kind of recent years, I have kind of devoted myself to trying to answer some of those questions. And that's where some of my work really comes out from. Now, I mean, you, you talk about this, you know, thinking ideas are awesome. People have a real bias toward that, right? I mean, can you kind of talk about what you've learned um, either from your own work or talking to others about having that bias, I have an idea, therefore it must be awesome. And it may be you know, the hesitancy that people have to, to try to disprove a hypothesis. Yeah, so I've started labeling that. I call it the innovator's bias for the solution uh, or the entrepreneur's bias, however you want to look at that. Now, I thought that was one of the things you'd only find with first-time entrepreneurs because a lot of first-time entrepreneurs really see the solution most clearly. Um, but I've proven that to be incorrect. So one of the things I've been able to do in the last few years is go around the world and really talk to all kinds of people, people starting new ideas, new businesses, new startups, but even innovators in large companies. And I see this bias rampant everywhere. And that's just one of those cognitive biases we have to deal with. And fundamentally, for me, that was a big aha moment is that I began to realize that you can build a great, greatest solution, but if it doesn't solve a customer problem or it's not the right timing or you know, the whole bunch of things that can be part of part of that business model story that can make that solution be irrelevant. And that's how I sometimes summarize the biggest pitfall is that it's not so much a failure to build 
the solution, what we set out to build, but rather a failure to build the business model. Well, and, and you talk about that cognitive bias. I'm almost starting to think it's human nature because even, you know, say for listeners who aren't entrepreneurs, they're doing continuous improvement, they're identifying problems, they're coming up with solutions, maybe even on a small scale, there's still, I think, that similar bias where people sometimes latch on too much to the, to the first idea and, and instead of continuing to brainstorm or continuing to study the problem, you know, they jump to a solution uh, very quickly. It's a very uh, common tendency. Yeah, I think it's, it's we get very uncomfortable when we don't have an answer. And <laughs> yeah. not only is that the human condition, but we, we are, we're trained to do that in school. We're just taught to always have a, an answer. Um, and then I call this also sometimes the curse of specialization, which is an interesting manifestation of that that part. So in the way I'll kind of explain it is that sometimes in my company, I will present a problem to my team. Like say we have a conversion rate problem. We aren't getting enough paid customers. It's funny when I turn to my designers, they will come up with design solutions. Uh, if I turn to my developers, they'll want to build more features. If I turn to my marketers, they'll want to buy more ads or do more targeting. Um, so that's kind of that bias mm -hmm. again manifested just through specialization because that's what they're really good at doing and that's how they will think of solutions. Yeah, so maybe kind of backing up a little bit, again, in your story, you know, you've been uh, writing books about lean and lean startup methodology. I'm always curious, um, I think especially in your case, coming from a software and entrepreneurship background, how did you get exposed uh, to lean, um, Toyota production system that, you know, that you reference in um, the book Scaling Lean? I mean, how did you get exposed to all of that? Sure. So I think I'm, I'm the kind of person that that looks for answers in a lot of different places. I think there are analogs everywhere and people are always solving problems that if you bring them into your problem domain, in my case, you know, entrepreneurship or business, you can learn a lot. And so before even the Lean Startup became what it was, I was kind of in search and I wouldn't say I necessarily, I knew of Lean and some of the ideas in Lean Thinking, but it was really kind of a bigger influence from say Eric Ries who kind of started to talk about some of the core tenants in that. Um, and I began to see that there were a lot of parallels. So I, I dug a bit deeper, you know, started reading a few few lean books and I'd read um, the Toyota way before. And so I was just interested in, in that philosophy, but kind of looking at it from the angle of how we can take some of these, these tenants and start applying them to even the startup process um, was kind of an interesting way of synthesizing two different worlds. And kind of, I just dug deeper and you know, I've read a lot since then. Yeah, well, it's it's great. I'll, uh, I'll uh, compliment you for reading the Toyota way and, and from you know lo looking through scaling lean. I mean, you know, I'd almost think you were an industrial engineer because you're talking <laughs> about ideas from the theory of constraints and flow and throughput. Yeah, um, it reminds me of, you know, industrial engineering thinking, but it, it's just, you know, kind of gets sidetracked for a minute here. It kind of cracks me up sometimes when I have the chance to be around startup circles where it seems like people have read Eric's book and somehow missed the idea that this comes from Toyota. There, there's a, it's a kind of a curious uh, ignorance. I don't know if that's a, a bias of specialization in a different way yeah. that people don't appreciate that. I, I, I mean, I find that to be amazing and at the same time, not that surprising. I, I just, I'm always amazed at how, how, how few people actually read or go look for information. And, um, and yeah, so I know that, you know, that's one of the very prominent things, both in the Lean Startup, uh, as well as just in the name itself. But so many people will just not bother to even understand uh, where those things come from. And, you know, in, in the realm I'm in, people in healthcare will say all the time, you know, well, you know hospitals aren't factories, as, yeah. as, as if that's 
an insight I hadn't considered yet. <laughs> and I mean, so, I mean, you know, you talk about, you know, ideas from, you talk about the idea of a customer factory and, you know, do, do you get pushback from people saying of, look, you know, start entrepreneurship's way more complicated than building physical products or right. how, how do you have that discussion with people? Well, if, if I give a little bit of the backstory of why, why the customer factory, so one of the things that I, you know, I, I took away from Lean, kind of even with the first book, is this idea of reducing waste. Mm-hmm. And so I, I began to apply that. And so Running Lean was a lot about identifying some of the starting areas of waste and go, go deep in there. But I realized that as products begin to move forward, waste is everywhere. So unlike Taichi Ono, who could draw a chalk circle and people would struggle for hours to find something to improve, in our startups, you ask an entrepreneur, what should I improve? And they'll give you a list of 100 things. And so for me, it really became a question of how not so much can we identify waste, but how do we prioritize that? And so that's when, again, I said, you know, all this came from manufacturing. There must have been a time where these factories weren't as efficient. And that's when I kind of I also read um, Eliyahu Goldratt's book, The Goal, mm-hmm. several years ago. But again, you know, not connected the dots. And so I picked it up again and said, you know, there was that book, Theory of Constraints, and you know, talked about Theory of Constraints. You know, could that be applied? And so I rewrote it. And again, with the intent of finding a way to, to make it to, to get some ideas and apply it to the, you know, I just came up with this metaphor of the customer factory. And I was surprised at how we could take many of those ideas and just apply them. And they worked quite well. So mm-hmm. so for me, that's, again, this this concept of, you know, you've got to read widely. You've got to be exposed to different ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's in the metaphors and in the the, the synthesis of, of those ideas that sometimes these new models lie. And I, that, that's what the, the next book is really all about. Well, and so you know, I'd like to kind of dig deeper into that, the idea of um, prioritizing waste, because I'll, I'll hear you know, uh, stories about people getting, I, I think, sort of sidetracked sometimes in their lean efforts of thinking, you know, all waste is created equal and we just need to search out waste everywhere we go. And it seems like in the book, you do a good job of laying out the idea of uh, constraints or bottlenecks. And so can you, can you sort of, you know, elaborate on all of that and how it applies to an entrepreneurial um, endeavor? Yeah, yeah. And so I was initially influenced kind of in this thinking from a mentor of mine who talked about right action, right time. And it was a philosophical way of saying, you know, there's going to be hundreds of things you can do, but you have to always identify that single domino, that thing that has the biggest impact. And I apply that still to this day, very kind of philosophically. Every day I wake up, I'm always thinking of what is the one thing I can accomplish before noon that's going to have the biggest impact so that the rest of the day, if I just, I'm in meetings all day or do something or just, you know, take the time off, I would still feel like I accomplished something. So I, I, that was where I was coming from, and even in running lean in this in this in the beginning, some of those those constraints are very obvious. So the way I, I look at that is that if you have an idea, usually the foundation of the idea is built around who your customers are and what problems you're solving. And it's easy to rationalize that is that if you don't understand your customers and their problems, whatever you build may fall flat, which is what we see. And so the solution will be invalidated. Your channels will get invalidated because you're reaching the wrong customer. Um, pricing, if there's something nobody wants, why would they pay you even a cent? So that gets invalidated. So we can see why starting there makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Now, as things begin to mature, there's again this idea where there's just lots of moving parts. And so especially once a product is out there, I find that no two entrepreneurs are the same, no two products are the same. So this is where metrics can help. So we need to start using some metrics where we can see how the output of the business model is really working. And that's when I came up with this kind of concept that 
fundamentally every business is isn't has a job of making customers mm. and that's why i went to this factory metaphor and said if all businesses make customers how can we describe those macro steps and mm-hmm. so i started to outline some of those steps which are universal every customer goes through a set of 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 uh, of transitions throughout the customer journey with your product and so once we can begin to apply again factory like thinking we can start to measure the rate at which people are moving through those steps, where the bottlenecks are, we can start applying the same things we would use on the factory floor to figure out yield and defects and, and focus our attention to the customer factory. And that fundamentally is, is how that, you know, that gets applied. And you know, when you talk about measurement, your, your thought about the right action, the right time kind of makes me think about, well, what, what's the right measurement where, uh, you know, there, there's, I think sometimes, a struggle between uh, what's easy to measure versus what's really important to right. measure. Um, right. Can you sort of elaborate on, you know, choosing the right metrics or the or you know a single key metric? Yeah. So, especially in the world we live in today, we have things that, especially in the software world, some places it's still hard to measure things. But definitely, in if you're doing anything online, which lots of businesses have an online component. We can collect so much data with just a few snippets of JavaScript code. You can get Google Analytics and they'll throw thousands of numbers at you. And so what I end up seeing a lot of people struggle with is not so much can we measure things, but again, knowing what to measure and they rather get this drowning feeling. And so what I found is that it was easy. It was, it was much more important to really identify the one thing that matters. And if we, again, go into some of the theory of constraints type of thinking, one of the things that Goldratt talks about is that throughput is king. So if you can figure out the throughput of a factory, and then there are these you know, other, other inputs like inventory and operating expenses, but throughput is king. You want to increase that, and then the other two, there's a, they're kind of, it's a system, so they're interrelated. Um, but if you kind of apply that concept, similarly here, if we describe throughput in the customer factory as the rate at which you create customers or the rate at which you create monetizable value, even a better definition, um, we can then begin to say that could be a good approximation of traction. So you see a lot of startup founders running around saying we have traction, but if you peel in, it could be they raise a big round of funding and they think they have traction, mm-hmm. but that's not truly traction. Or they move to a bigger office and they think that's you know a sign that they're being successful. But again, in my book, that's not traction unless you can show me that the business is growing and that's in terms of kind of customer value being created. Um, so I, so I, I use that singular definition, and it's it's funny how you can take that and apply it to really any business model type. So you have a direct business model where you really have raw materials that are users and they become customers. You may have a derivative business model or a multi-sided model like Facebook where you still have raw materials users, but you don't create money with them. You create an asset uh, which you then sell to advertisers. So in the case of, of Facebook, they're selling attention and data, and that's what they're really making. And then the advertisers come and buy that. So we can apply that metaphor and works works beautifully. So you, you talk about business models, and um, one thing I, you know, I think you're really well known for is the lean canvas and you know, this idea of trying to sketch out um, your, your uh, you know, everything on a single page. Can you sort of talk about the lean canvas and how that's helpful for an entrepreneur? Sure. Yeah, so if we, so since we talked about some of this stuff being based on the scientific method, one of the things we want to be very careful about with our ideas is drawing some boundaries, drawing a line in the sand. Otherwise, when we do no planning, uh, we just tend to have the just do it attitude and we can just rationalize everything after the fact. Now, traditionally, we have used business plans for this purpose. 
Um, I don't have an issue with the business planning process, but the issue that I have with business plans is that unfortunately nobody takes the time to read the whole thing. So it's often a fool's errand that they send entrepreneurs off to as a way to say, if you're really serious, you will invest the time to think through your idea. But then when you come back, don't give me that 60 page document, give me a condensed version, give me the one page executive summary or the 10 page slide deck or the 30 second elevator pitch. And so I began to find that most people, myself included, just stopped writing business plans. But the alternative wasn't any better because, again, that no plan doesn't mean that you're, you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started searching for there has to be a middle ground. And I stumbled into Alex Osterwalder, who had created this business model canvas. At first, I thought it was too simple to be helpful. I sketched a few ideas there. And I found this was actually quite a fun exercise because you could visualize the whole kind of model on a, on a piece of paper and you could start playing with it like Lego blocks. And so I began to riff on it. It was licensed under a Creative Commons. And I felt that, again, being kind of very lean centric, you had to have customer and problems on there. So mm-hmm. I swapped some of the boxes and put a problem box that wasn't there. I put a solution box as if that's not there, the entrepreneurs are unhappy. And so I began to kind of riff on that. And that's what, what became the lean canvas. Um, fast forward today, it's being used in lots of places, you know, large companies and small, even universities are kind of using it as a way to, for, for students to share some of their ideas and just get into this entrepreneurial mindset. Um, what I found powerful about it is that it's not even, it's, a, it's essentially a business modeling tool disguised as a maker tool. You can just go to someone who wants to build something really awesome and say, tell me your idea. And you can even interview them and create this canvas out and then show them what they just said and where some of the risks might be um, or have them go through the exercise. And it's always a very revealing transformational exercise, I find. So that was like the short kind of history of it. But yeah, that's really what it is. It's essentially a one page business plan document that fits on a page. Uh, Power of it is that you can create it very quickly. You can put it in front of someone. They can't help but read it and can't help but share their opinion, which is where I think true success and through learning lies. Well, and, and there's a lot that, uh, you know, the, the, the document and the process you're describing um, might remind listeners to an A3 if they've ever done yeah. A3 problem solving. Instead of doing a big, huge PowerPoint deck about your project that you plan on presenting somewhere, it, the, you know, an A3 uh, is, is, is a living document where some, hopefully somebody is coaching you through it, you're talking through it. It's, it's a similar process with the Lean Canvas, right? That's, that's exactly right. And actually, in the next book, I have some additional A3-inspired documents that just help to make that, um, I guess, carry it forward. So when you start talking about, so the, the Lean Canvas is more your kind of big idea, but we need to break it down. So there are some other A3s that start talking about what might be your validation plan. So that's where you may talk about what your minimum viable product may be, that's that first iteration. Um, you might start uh, designing some experiments, and so we have an A3 for that. And again, I find the power of the A3 is that it is just that one page, so it's not a lot to, to you know, no entrepreneur I know loves to document stuff. Um, so it's just enough to where they can do it and get value. And um, and we find people do it, and it's also incremental, so you don't have to do it all at once. And so that's, I think, the power of, of that kind of thinking. Yeah, and, and that, that document you're referring to, the, this jumped out at me, the, uh, the one-page experiment report, right? Sure. If, if you can sort of talk through that a little bit. Yeah. So the way I kind of explain that to people is I tell them that whether they like it or not, they run experiments all the time in their businesses. They just usually run very poor experiments. And so what I mean by that is that they'll 
often do some kind of a campaign. Maybe they'll do some kind of a launch. Um, they will expect good things to happen, like customers coming and buying their product. And then when that doesn't happen, they just say, oh, we didn't get the result. But then they rationalize it and then move forward and, and, and don't learn from it. Um, so some of the tenants, I have a chapter in the book about the seven habits for designing uh, good experiments or highly effective experiments. And I kind of list those out. And I found that as a checklist, it was helpful to create one of those one pagers or one, you know, the A3 report that essentially walks people through some of the things. So you have to declare outcomes up front. You have to write your expected outcomes in a way that's falsifiable. Again, it comes from the scientific method. Um, otherwise, we just prove to ourselves that, you know, maybe this is right, maybe it's not, but we never know for sure. So there are some of those kind of tenants that are in, embodied in, in that exercise of creating the, the, uh, the uh, A3 experiment report. Another very powerful one is time boxing. I find that too many people will run an experiment and then they will leave the time undefined. And so when they don't get the results they need, they simply just extend the time and they're hoping that things will turn around. And uh, so one of the things I talk about is you declare those, those time boxes up front because a nice thing with time is that as long as the world doesn't come to an end, that that time does come, and it's a great point to bring come your you know come together with the team and talk about wherever the results are, talk about what happened and what did we learn from it, and how do we move forward from there. Yeah, and you know, that experiment report reminds me a lot of uh, again, it, it's like a, it it's probably more like an A three. Yep. in terms of the thought process then you know, the lean canvas it's on a single page and you know it's visual and there's elements of that but um the, the one thing that really jumps out at me is this idea uh, i've never seen anyone in an a3 really talk about a falsifiable hypothesis sometimes people get off track and they they use an a3 to just document how they've jumped to a solution <laughs> instead sure. of sure. thinking about it experimentally and and, and this also reminds me of the uh, the toyota kata approach of sort of stating framing an experiment in terms of, uh, you know, here's my goal, here's what I plan on doing next, here's what I expect to happen, and then documenting, I think, as you're saying, not just, oh, well, that was a failure, but, oh, what, you know, what did we learn? Um, even even if it moved forward as we expected, what did we learn is a powerful question. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that is a key message, I guess, throughout the book is that, you know, you find a lot of people running away from failure um, and it's, it's such a taboo word so the moment they see okay this experiment's going south let's you know use the magic word pivot and let's try something different um, and I kind of joke is that a pivot not grounded in learning is a disguised see what sticks strategy yeah so, <laughs> flailing so yeah. or flailing around yeah. instead of experimenting right <laughs> yeah yeah so, so so the nice thing and then the other kind of counter to that is that if we look at lots of breakthrough discoveries both in science and in business they were all accidental you know Google's uh, auction-based ad system was not their invention. They kind of borrowed it from a competitor, tested it, and it did three times as well one day, and they doubled down on that strategy. Um, we can look at things like penicillin, microwaves, x-rays. They all were accidental discoveries. So the critical thing all those scientists and, and innovators did is when they saw something that was unexpected, they didn't call it a failure, they asked a critical next question, which is, why did that just happen? And to me, that's something not enough people do is the moment they see that failure, they run away. So I actually, we sometimes celebrate the fact that we didn't get the expected result because that's where you stand to learn the most if you dig a bit deeper. All right, so um, in, the, in the time we've got left, um, you know, you've got your earlier book, Running Lean, and um, this, this new book, Scaling Lean. For, for people who haven't read either of them, can you kind of walk through the, 
the the story of the two books, how, how they flow, what you would recommend uh, for a reader? Does it make sense to read Running Lean first, then Scaling Lean, or how how do those books fit together? Yeah, so in a perfect world, if I could you know go back in time or just start all over, I would probably take bits from both books and and kind of write two new books mm-hmm. because they they do interweave into each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of the, the backstory of that is the way I describe it is that. Running Lean was really a book written for entrepreneurs, and it was for them to kind of realize that the business model, not the solution, was the product, and it introduced the Lean Canvas type of thinking. It got them to start thinking about customers and problems before solutions, and so it's a good starting up book. So I find that people who are starting new initiatives um, can benefit from some of the ideas in that book. Um, So the, the, the... the most primary conversation that's emphasized there is the entrepreneur to customer. So how can we figure out what customers want without doing the usual focus groups and surveys, which typically are not as effective as doing some of the more kind of inquiry-based search, which is what the book describes. Um, In Scaling Lean, I I got people after the first book saying, this was a nice roadmap to get started, but when I go to my boss, when I go to my stakeholder, whether that's a boss or an investor or even yourself, um, I don't know if this idea is really going to be investable, um, even with time or with money, you know, however you want to describe that. And so I wrote Scaling Lean to answer that question. So it really is more a question of how can we take an idea and then size it to begin with. And so this is where some of the throughput and traction kind of metrics come in. So can we do a quick uh, back of the envelope calculation? And I use a Fermi estimation technique. Um, in five minutes, show people how they can tell whether the idea will 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 be will work or is it completely invalidated. And I'll tell you, I, I'm amazed at how many ideas just will not even work on paper. But nobody ever sees that because they don't bother with that uh, basic exercise. So it, it starts off there, and then it kind of starts to build in on once your idea is flowing, how do you know, um, you know, what strategy do you use to go to scale? Because trying to go to scale from day one is usually a bad idea. So how do you do a stage launch? Just like using the factory metaphor, factory managers don't go to scale immediately. They figure out what is the market demand, and they progressively level up. Um, as entrepreneurs, if we embrace that kind of thinking, we can apply a lot of that constraint thinking and and uh, an optimization technique to figure out priorities and, and model up from there. So, it, so that's really what the second book is about. It's more about, uh, in many ways, scaling lean is is a there's a play on the terms. It's more. What do you do as your product begins to scale, at product and team? So as you go beyond the initial release and you start to grow the product and or team, how do you create a culture where you can still stay lean? Um, and that's kind of what that where that title comes from. And uh, maybe a you know, final question here before we wrap up. Um, you know, th- th- there are I think a lot of cases of lean in manufacturing, lean in healthcare, the lean startup realm, where you know people hear a little bit about lean or lean startup conference concepts and they get somehow sidetracked into something that isn't really lean is there sort of an example of that 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 comes to comes to mind sort of an unfortunate misunderstanding or misinterpretation of this approach that you would kind of warn people against yeah so the way that i um i I think that the, the most common thing i still see is people don't connect lean with the lean thinking they kind of look at lean as the cheap and scrappy way to do things um, and it's unfortunate that Eric, you know, happened to pick two words when he came up with the lean startup that are both 
kind of subject to a lot of misunderstanding. So lean because people will say, well, it's what you do when you don't have money or resources. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the startup, you know, that, that's where you go to the corporate world. They're like, you know, we're not a startup. We have, you know, we're we have we're pretty we're doing well, so we don't need this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so those those are two big things. And so the way I try to describe it is that um, lean is about being efficient with resources. The way I like to tell the story is that it's not so much about money or people, but rather it's being efficient with your time because that is the scarcest resource. Right. So you, take, you can take any idea, and even if you're a big company, if you take too long, your competitors will take the market. Um, so if we can be efficient with time, and to be able to be efficient with time, we have to maximize for learning and then turn that learning into business model results, then we, we can win and we have a chance of winning. Otherwise, you're just going to be sitting on the sidelines. Yeah. Um, so that's, a, that's how I try to counter it. But yeah, if the misunderstanding is there, you have to start with... You know that's not what it's about. You know this is how to really think of it, but that's just an unfortunate um, use of terms. Unlike say growth hacking, which the term I find that everyone wants. Yeah, <laughs> wants to have some of the some of that. Yeah, and there's there's 25 almost 30 years of history of the word lean itself kind of causing yeah different problems. But um, well, in, in the spirit of of trying to be efficient with time. Um, how can people find you and, and your work online, websites, social media? What would you point people to? Sure. So the place I I have started to consolidate everything just under one site. So leanstack.com, that's S-T-A-C-K, um, is where you'll find a lot of my writing. Um, there are links to some of the books that I've written. Um, all my contact information is there as well. So that's the best place to go. Okay. Well, great. Well, again, our guest has been Ash Moria talking about Running lean, scaling lean, lean startups. Uh, thank you for uh, being here on the show with us today. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.